Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah Fletcher, and I'm a medical anthropologist and the manager of the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at UBC. On February 18th, the Team Up webinar focused on high-functioning teams and the Quality Team Coaching Program for Rural BC, or QTC. In this webinar, Drs. Dana Hubler and Raul Gupta presented an overview of the program and shared their experiences with the pilot, what they learned about key elements that foster the development of highly functioning teams. Listen to episode 9 to hear the recording. After the webinar, I was joined by Sean Ebert, a rural family physician who's also the new primary care lead with the BC Patient Safety Quality Council and the quality lead for the Rural Obstetrical Program. We sat down together virtually uh, to reflect on key takeaways from the webinar. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Sean, if you think back to the webinar, um, what stood out for you from what uh, Raul and Dana had to say? Yeah, Sarah. So first of all, I I know Raul and and Dana quite well with different work that I've done with them in the past. And certainly they're leaders in their areas. And it was neat to see the, the program that they're coming up with. I think for me, part of it is just having somebody out there looking at how do we do this better? How do we actually take the theories and concepts of team based care and put them on the ground so people can actually start employing these techniques? and seeing the the benefits and the results. Because I think the research shows us that there is tremendous benefit from high-functioning teams. And what they've looked at, what they've developed around their workshops, I think, focuses, number one, on the need to keep to certain principles. And I really like their principles of creating a safe environment, having that positive psychology, leaning on the experiential elements that anybody in practice can bring to these opportunities, and that focus on the need to shift culture and be open and willing to take this initiative as a group. So I think that sort of principle-based approach really stood out for me as one of the highlights. You know, for, for me too, and one of the things I think I think the idea of creating an empowering team in infrastructure and and what does that look like? How to think about patterns of behavior across a team? How does the team make agreements with each other about how they're going to f- function? How do you do those early building blocks that that really help pull people together and and build those shared values? And I know that in an earlier team up webinar we we talked about the team agreements that you can use to to pull people together. And I really thought that the the way they talked about the QTC program and the I think it was eight elements that they had that they kind of worked people through really made sense. Yeah, I, I would agree, Sarah. And it's interesting because in rural practice, a lot of the key elements are already well established. In the rural environments, people usually have to, you know, work together. There's usually a high level of communication, even though it might not be stated. There's always common shared goals. And there's a certain psychological safety that that people already have when they're in rural environments. But I think to put a framework around that for people and highlighting that for people lends itself to, you talked about the empowerment and understanding how to leverage those assets and those skills and to to also share the leadership and move, move everybody towards that learning culture. I think their model is a good pathway for what I would consider already fairly high-functioning teams to really up their game. 
and develop those skills and the knowledge to, to make those improvements. I think you make an interesting point there because you, you said this is a great structure for those kind of already quite high-functioning teams to maybe move to the next level. One of the things I was wondering about when they were talking about the learning culture is it's really easy to say, let's work in a, an environment where it's okay to make mistakes. And one of the things I've noticed, I think like particularly in the healthcare system in BC right now is there's this surface desire to work in a space of innovation and be comfortable making mistakes. But that, that actually creating that culture is really tricky. I'm wondering from your experience, if there's any sort of key steps that you think can help move those earlier teams maybe closer up. Yeah, and again, I think it depends where a given team is at. Because in order to move to that level, you need a high level of trust. And along with the relationships that people tend to have, there does tend to be a higher level of trust in the rural teams. However, we still work in a hierarchical institutional organizational system. And in my experience, it's easy to say, let's make mistakes, let's move ahead. But that is easy to say, harder to do. And I think if you take smaller steps, and they talk about they talked about being flexible and creating kind of pathways and, and a process for these individual teams but having that willingness to take small steps first, have some wins, and I think demonstrate the processes and the methods, and then people get comfortable. And they also talked about having that collective kind of leadership and that collective accountability in such a way that you would have administrative people at the table, you'd have clinicians at the table, you'd have the support of executive, for example. And having those pieces I think outlined and defined for everybody involved gives a certain level of comfort. And then you say, okay, let's move ahead and let's see what's next. Let's, let's give something a try. And I think it takes a little bit of that groundwork. And once people get started on some projects and start to see success, it builds. And, and then the angst around failure and the willingness to be creative and be innovative starts to build. But I do think it requires those base steps first. I keep thinking about the example that I think Dana gave of like the Dr. Doug example where it was if he walks into uh, the operating room and someone from the team is like how are you today doctor he feels really nervous but if he, he walks in and someone's oh Dr. Doug how was your weekend he knows that the team trusts each other and she had a really nice kind of stepped example of how differences in communication can really trigger that kind of sense of team. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can think of any examples from your practice where you're like, this is a really great example of something that I've learned from a team that I've been part of. Yeah, and, and I'm a big fan of kind of that team-based collective leadership and accountability structure. I, I also work in the operating environment like Doug Cochran, and you really need your teammates in those environments because they're complex environments. They're a little higher stake in the sense that mistakes can lead to outcomes that we might not want. As an example, where I worked, we employed little huddles every day. And a team huddle would be an opportunity just for people to take two minutes to where you at, any concerns. And that often set the tone for communication for the day. And again, you do that activity on a regular basis and you develop the relationships that then allow people to be very comfortable saying, hey, Sean, did you see this? 
And again, we, we didn't have a lot of hierarchy in those environments. The way we needed to work was very focused around the patient, the needs, and making sure the work was done effectively and efficiently. And it comes down to relationships, it comes down to process. It, it does come down to a certain level of personal expertise in what people do and a knowledge of the different roles that each of us on the team play and the ability to transfer roles from time to time if the circumstances require it. So I think, again, focus on communication, having those clear roles, the shared goals, the mutual trust, all those important elements that then lead to the good outcomes and the high quality. You know, all the work that we've done in our team with team mapping that idea, really getting uh, role clarity and understand who's doing what, not just based on scope of practice, but also what, what people like doing, what kind of, you know, extra experience might they have in different areas? How can you really use those strengths of your team members? It kind of keeps coming back for me to this idea of really taking a strengths-based approach to team development. And what can you do to really create that psychological safety and I think psychological safety was something that came out of the webinar. The, the psychological safety piece seems difficult to develop, but obvious, right? Yeah, I think it highlights again, that's probably one of the best indicators of what the culture is like in a given environment. And again, if you are in a, a position where people have a high level of trust, just having this, the safety to, to speak up and to communicate in such a way that you are going to catch the concerns, mitigate any potential problems. Again, that whole safety to do that, I think one of the best reflections moving towards that learning culture, that learning organization culture. And as you said, people feel very empowered when they are not only working to their scope of practice, but nurturing their, their strengths and as teams evolve, people usually know this is a person's strength or that's something they don't enjoy as much. And so teams start to work in such a way that, that they leverage the strengths of the team members. And I think people then have that even higher level of comfort and competence that, again, builds on what we call collective competence to, again, take that team to that next level of, of quality and, and, and performance kind of makes me think about, and I think towards the end of the webinar, they were talking about this idea of the development of teams being both uh, a kind of collective change process and then an inner change process as well, very individual, but also having this kind of broader collective element. And I'm wondering, again, thinking about not necessarily the teams that are already working well together and, and highly functioning, those really early teams that are just developing, if there's any pieces of, of advice or kind of key learnings that that you would either take from the session or your own experiences. We always come back to the idea of huddles in these conversations and just how critical they are to, to getting people on the same page. But are there any other kind of process pieces? I think over time, it's a matter of working in such a way that it builds, those, builds on those principles they described. And I really like their sort of six workshop process. And it looked to me that it built slowly from relatively simple, might not be the right word, but but certain skills and, and principles and then something into the more complex. And that, I think that reflects the development and evolution of a team anyway. So in the early days, I think if people are starting with a good ground of good communication and, and openness, and then I think it's the activities and the experiential pieces of the work that start to develop and allow the opportunity to exercise those other principles of team development. 
And it only takes, for example, a couple of, say, critical cases in emergency or some potentially challenging cases on the ward. Or I don't want to make it centered around crises, but it seems that things that have a higher emotional content are those experiences that will help to develop and meld a team quicker. Kind of those catalyzing moments, right? Exactly. And then the other way to, I think, develop that, we've been doing a lot in some of the program work I've been involved with, is using simulation activities. And I find interprofessional development opportunities like simulation are really good tools to build those team-based skills, those, those high-functioning team skills. It, it seems to be one of those tools that helps teams evolve quicker, and then you don't have to be doing it in a crisis, crisis situation necessarily. So I'm wondering if you can speak to what you think the role of virtual supports are in, in creating these team-building opportunities or creating opportunities for, for people to become highly-functioning teams. Virtual now is, is just expanded incredibly this last year. It's fantastic. What we've been able to do now, certainly at the patient interface level, virtual, at the sort of team development level, lots of virtual, just in meetings. When we get together in person, though, we can also bring people not present geographically into the clinical experience. Yeah, there's lots of wonderful opportunities now with virtual. People are getting very comfortable using virtual now, which is just an absolutely wonderful thing. One of the questions that came up in the webinar was this idea of how to manage the tricky tensions that can be present between shared leadership and the role of most responsible provider and, and how you navigate that in the context of a team. Yeah, I picked up on that question as well in the webinar, and it's a good one. And I think it, it's what's valid because of the history, probably more of our system of care, where you essentially had the generally the physician as the lead in care, whereas now it's shifting to the point where the patient actually should be leading or co-leading their care, and we are all members of a team around that patient. Now, there still is a need to have a most responsible provider, and I think the evidence suggests strongly that a lot of problems in, can go away and quality can be improved. But that doesn't mean that the most responsible practitioner has to be the decision maker and the one, partly because he wants that burden of responsibility. But it does require then an openness as a clinician and a provider to sit, to listen to the entire team. I think it just, it forces us to more more consider what is the patient's need and how do I fit into this? It, it's a difficult thing to do, but I think it's a necessary thing to do. It's that sort of self-awareness piece of team development. You talked a little bit about the individual and the team. And I think all of us as team members need to try to be as self-aware as we can and try then to ask the, the, the objective questions about what is our role in this circumstance? What do we bring to the table? And I think if we do that, the tension goes away because then the focus is on our collective goal of good care, good outcomes, and it takes some of those old ego elements out of it. And again, it's being open and willing to stand beside people in a different way. When I, I read some good books, there was one book called The Patient Will See You Now. And it's very timely because it talks to what is the role of, of the physician as a provider nowadays. And it's not about understanding and, knowledge and knowing everything because we absolutely can't. It's more about helping people understand information being that partner in care with the patient, and then that extends to being partners in care with our providers and our team. And I think it just lends itself to 
the team dynamic and providing team-based care. Again, we don't, we, I wasn't trained that way. I know that clinicians now certainly are, are much more exposed to that thinking of training those principles. But I think it, in the end, allows team-based care to flourish if we get out of our own way and recognize that this is better for the patient, better for the system. And helping people understand what does that mean in terms of skill development and process uh, development. And I think their workshop competencies around, they talked about self-awareness, they talked about the peer coaching, the shared models. And I'm really curious as how they're going to assess this stuff because I'm very interested in, in how their assessment and their measurements are going to go. Yeah, the question of evaluation and impact that kind of came out at the end. It's so challenging, especially when you don't have a baseline. Like, is it better? We think it's better. People seem to feel like it's better. We feel happier. But <laughs> Yeah, and then what do we measure? We measure, we can measure patient outcomes. We can measure provider satisfaction. And I think it shows up, and they've shown this, it shows up when we, we were satisfied to do what we do. The system works better. We know that. We see less mental health issues, less stress, less disabilities through work. And they have shown, though, quality improvement and better outcomes across the board. Yeah, we're certainly, in in our team, we're spending a lot of time right now thinking about what does an evaluation framework for team-based care look like? What are those indicators and measures? What are recommended tools? It's interesting because we talk about needing to understand what we're measuring. Well, we ought to try to understand what we're measuring because that will then lend itself to looking in the right places and watching the right outcomes. But at the same time, some of this is new ground. And, and I love the openness that I'm hearing and seeing around. We, we understand where we're headed. Here's some good tools. Here's a good process. And we expect that these things will happen and we're going to watch for it. But let's see what happens. I kind of like that. I like people being willing to, to give something a try without necessarily being able to say, yes, this is absolutely going to work. Because if we wait until we figure, think we've figured everything out, we're never going to get started. And, and at the end of the day, we, we need to change. We need to be open and willing to try these things out. So I'm, I'm excited for them that they're making these efforts. I lean in on evaluation because I really feel strongly that if we're looking at least trying to look for the right things, we're going to probably recognize when we're on the right track. You don't want to handcuff yourself with all those parameters because then you're not open to being flexible and creative. And and I really like that they have approached this with flexibility, with an openness and a framework for sure. They know, know, know where they're headed, but they can be flexible in their delivery so that any given community that they're working with, they'll be able to tailor their learning and products and processes for them. And in my mind, that's going to increase engagement because it's going to be meaningful for the participants. And I've spent a lot of time on engagement over the years. I've never been to a meeting in 25 years that didn't have some element of an engagement issue. And again, in rural practice, capacity is limited and there's high levels of burnout. But if you can come at someone saying, we're going to make your you work better. We're going to actually improve things. And here's how, and are you in? And if someone ever came to me and said, in the next six months, I'm going to improve your work X a certain amount, and you're going to enjoy yourself more, would you like to give it a try? I would absolutely have been all over that. I've never had an administrator ever in my career ask me, Sean, what can I do in the next three months to make your job easier? If, some, if someone was like, what would benefit you the most? Absolutely.
Let's start from there. We'll do it. Let's do it. I, I could tell them 30 or 40 things that I think they, they could do to make my life easier. But I was doing this also in isolation. And I love that they are bringing the right people to the table and saying, hey, we're going to collectively make this better. And here's the tools and here's the way forward. Because let's face it, several heads are far better than one when it comes to making decisions. And one thing we've limited ourselves with, I think, over the years is not being aware enough Again, having that situational awareness and self-awareness to the point where we understand what we're doing in the system and, and how we make it better. And I've routinely now asked my colleagues, what can I do that makes would make your job a little bit easier? And oftentimes it's a very small thing that I had no idea about. And I love those examples. And now I actually am told those things on a regular basis when I go back and work in those rural environments because I've asked enough that they are happy and comfortable to say, Sean, why don't you do this because that makes this way easier. And I love that because, again, it gives me the comfort that I'm not only doing the job I need to, but I'm actually making it easier for my teammates along the way. The one thing that I really loved about the model that they walked us through was intentionally having leadership at the table and not having it start with leadership, right? So many of the early coaching models were actually leadership driven. And then you bring in, bring everyone into the fold. But I think building it from the ground up and starting with that sort of inclusive approach is just so valuable. No, and I think that was too heavily weighted in leadership in the past. I agree with you. Whereas leadership needs to be a, a component is like anything else, an important component. And I, again, I love the sort of collective and distributive leadership approach because at different points in different processes, various people will take on leadership roles. And when it happens in a team, it then becomes, again, a tool, a, a part of the, of the team dynamic, not just you're the leader. It's we all have leadership um, capabilities. We all can develop our skills. And at times, depending on the circumstance, I may take a lead role. And I, I just think that's absolutely a fabulous process to watch unfold. Change takes time and requires extra capacity, and I think that's a real challenge. You know, and what we've been working really hard to the last few years, and I'll be honest with you, the first year and a half I was spinning my wheels with the quality pillar of this program was helping people understand that it wasn't an extra. This is a shift in the way we want to think about the way we work and the way we do business. And by the way, here's a whole pile of supports to take ideas rarely do we have time set aside to say, oh, this is reflective slash communication slash team building time. People would, that would be the first thing to go off most people's calendar. It's, so it's an interesting dynamic and I'd be really curious where they're finding time because six sessions is only six sessions, six workshops. But how do you then build it into people's mindset that this needs to be an ongoing yeah. part of our work? Because of all of the advantages of doing this in terms of team development and um, maintenance and nurturing the relationships because it wouldn't happen otherwise. But. Well, and I think part of the way of doing work in that culture shift, but really important in there, I think you highlighted the idea of protecting time, right? And how do people get to the point where they can protect the time to continue the work? Because it is work and it's a practice, right? And it's, it's a, it's a, change in culture and you need to know what are those structures? Is it, is it huddles? Is it taking an appointment out of the day to give time for that capacity? But what are those kind of process changes that are then going to be 
brought forward to sustain beyond the, the six? No, and it's tough because we have such high demands on service delivery, which, again, if we had no wait lists and no wait times for care, people would probably find this a lot easier to do. But when it comes to service delivery, even though by doing it, we actually improve efficiency overall, productivity, because of that, people don't, it's not as tangible. All you see is that there's X number of people waiting for you. Now, with virtual care, though, I'll tell you something. We've seen a lot less challenges for for people to access care, and the day of the packed waiting room is now going to be long gone. We're seeing less lineups. We're seeing there's a different dynamic now, which maybe this will be amenable to us pushing this team-based and quality framework forward. It's kind of forced, it's forced rapid innovation in a space that otherwise would have taken years. You are absolutely right. Silver lining on this whole pandemic, I can promise you there's a number of silver linings. So how do we now, I guess, mobilize that and just keep it going? I think this process is part of that. And programs that that we're seeing here with team coaching with Raul and Dana will absolutely do that. And I think we just keep looking for those opportunities. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Sean. And thanks to everyone for joining us. And we hope you join us next time. Great. Thanks, Sarah.